people actually usually aren't arguing about issues at all. What they're arguing about is how dare you? Who do you think you are and who do you think I am? You want to you you continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse from the cops? Often we think about power in terms of who has the best ideas and therefore who has the upper hand. But what if there's a whole lot more going on as we employ power? Today we're talking with Russell Moore, public theologian at Christianity Today and director of Christianity Today's Public Theology Project. We talk with Dr. Moore about power in the church and about the way that the church wields power at a time when it seems to be losing cultural influence. And hang on to the end of the episode. We're going to share with you a song about the themes of this episode that are especially relevant during this Advent season. Welcome to Everything Just Changed, where we envision a post-culture war church and equip leaders who just can't even anymore. Dr. Moore, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to, glad to have you here. So we have been, we're in the midst of a series on power. It's become such a big cultural issue. It's kind of just come to light over the last several months. And so Brad and I are just trying to explore what we're talking about when we're talking about power. Why has it become such a divisive topic in the church? And how have we as Christians really failed to steward power well? So a couple quick just questions to get us started. Could you tell us what power is, especially from a distinctly Christian perspective? What are we talking about when we're talking about power? Well, I think uh, as with so many other things, we have to say, what's the specific context of the word? And so when I, when I use the, or use or hear the word power, uh, a couple things come to mind. Uh, one of them is what the sociologist uh, Robert Nisbet used to write about when he contrasted power with authority. Hmm. And uh, the way he defined power was uh, coercive um, strength uh, hmm. and authority as being, um, it's, it's almost hard to define, but it's, it's the, sort of, uh, the, sort of, uh, the sort of power that Jesus displays when the scribes say he, he te- or when the crowd say he teaches with authority and not as one of the scribes. Hmm. So it's a, um, an ability to uh, persuasively, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, change things based upon the authority of the person or the institution. Uh, so in that sense, power would be negative. When I think of it in a, a biblical sense of power, I would define it as the ability to effect change or to maintain stability hmm. so that you have both in Christ, in him, all things hold together uh, Colossians one, uh, but also uh, he is the word uh, through which uh, everything was made. Colossians one, John one, Genesis one, uh, other places. So I think that to power and wisdom go together in uh, the way that Paul uh, frames this in First Corinthians one, which of course drawing off of Jeremiah and Genesis and all sorts of other places, so that where there's not the wisdom. Uh, and the power together, you end up with something, with something other than either. And uh, and when those things are defined in the wrong way, you end up with something other than either. Mm. Yeah, that's so. That's really helpful. So the power is the ability to affect change or maintain stability. So if you were to give the American Evangelical Church a report card grade on how well we've understood and discipled according to that definition of power, what grade would you give and why? I wouldn't give a really good grade right now, uh, <laughs> uh, although I'm not sure that there's such a thing uh, as uh, the evangelical church. And so if we look at a kind of subculture by subculture and local congregation by local mm-hmm. congregation, there would be uh, many instances where where power is... Um, is taught well and modeled well, and and people are discipled in terms of the the use of power, uh, along the lines of uh, John the Baptist in in Luke three. The tax collectors and the soldiers come asking him about the use of their power, 
Um, what, what do we do now? Mm. Don't defraud people. Don't extort people. So he's, he's sort of coming to the, the temptation to use that Nisbet definition of power instead of authority uh, and, and talks to them about what it means to follow Christ. There are congregations that do that. But generally, I think if you asked the rest of the world, what do they think of uh, when they think of us, uh, they will usually think of a very twisted uh, and carnal sense of power. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the attempt at political power uh, or, uh, or even darker than that, uh, the, the predatory use of power in ways that are abusive. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the world has seen that out of the church and many people within the church have seen that and are, are hurting right now. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that actually leads into the, the next kind of section. I w- really wanted to, to get your perspective on, um, right. We are in a, I'd say even before Christianity today's the rise and fall of Mars Hill, I'd say the, the American church in general has been having this moment about the abuse of power in the church, about spiritual abuse. And it's a very real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, myself as a, an assistant pastor for two years, tried to minister under, um, pretty significant spiritual abuse. And so I'm mm-hmm. very, very empathetic to, uh, that dynamic. And this mm-hmm. is, this is a good conversation we're having. Mm-hmm. Um, it's real and kind of in, in a similar way that you were just articulating with like, uh, around, like, I don't really believe there is an evangelical church because there's a lot more diversity here institutionally than we than we think, or then is tweetable. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it, that the, the instances of abusive power seem significantly amplified by platforms, whether we're talking about like social media, but also just the sheer size of the churches that it's happened in means that it gets a lot more attention and play than, you know, the hundred person, you know, first Baptist church down the street. So I've got two questions related to that kind of cultural moment. The first is, how do leaders and pastors avoid the the equal and opposite errors of either a like using and leveraging authority insensitively with those who fear abuse due to either direct experience or like they've just become suddenly aware that this is a real thing and b allowing a fear of stepping on that landmine to swing the pendulum in the other direction to capitulation or neglect because Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm asking this question is because almost every pastor I know is is struggling to avoid the latter, mm-hmm. um, especially because they care, right? Yeah. Um, and it just feels very hard for there to be a healthy kind of third way in the midst of that tension. So can you maybe just talk about that? Well, I would I would maybe take issue with the first part of the premise. Uh, I would agree that those larger uh, those larger congregations or larger ministries get more attention mm-hmm. in the outside world. But um, I, I think this this also goes on in a um, in a unique sort of way in in very small uh, congregations and in uh, in places to which most people don't pay attention, sometimes mm-hmm. even more so because um, there are congregations where the power dynamic is about who's related to whom. Uh, or uh, where if you, you know, say you're in Seattle and uh, you're experiencing the, the toxic realities at Mars Hill Church, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that is real and that mm-hmm. is devastating. You can uh, eventually leave and go to uh, another church. In some communities, you really can't. Uh, if you, uh, you, you can't even be an ex evangelical in some, mm, uh, yeah. in some places because y- you lose all connections with, uh, with the community. So mm. that has its own unique, uh, uh totally. kind of, of power. I think there's always going to be a tendency to overcorrect, um, uh, against the, the last bad thing, but there also can be a fear of overcorrecting that, that keeps us from, from making, making change. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I wrote a couple of weeks ago because it's been on my mind a lot um, about thinking about my dad uh, mm-hmm. who, who died um, yeah. a year ago. And I was really judgmental, I think, mm-hmm. internally of my dad um, in one sense, not, not in others, but in one sense, because he, he had been a pastor's son 
and had uh, he had seen behind the veil, you know, uh, of what can happen in church life. And so he had a really conflicted sort of um, a view of the church. And I, on the other hand, uh, grew up with a a church that gave a sense of belonging, a sense of, I mean, those people really loved me and I knew they really loved me. Uh, I could see the flaws, but I could see the the love there. Mm. And so there was a, when I uh, told him that I think the Lord's calling me into ministry, uh, it, I was a nervous wreck because, you know, I, I was, I experienced probably what somebody would experience if they had to call their dad and say, and I've been arrested, you know, mm. because I knew he was not going to like it. And he didn't. And he said, I'm never going to bring it up again. I'm going to support you uh, completely from this point out. But I want to ask you to please reconsider because I don't want you to get hurt. I don't want you to experience what my dad experienced. And then he kept his word. He never said one discouraging uh, thing ever for the rest of his life. And I've been focused, I've been sort of, that keeps coming to mind uh, over the past year since he died, because I realize that I didn't understand uh, where that conflicted sort of uh, attitude toward the church was coming from. I, I was, I was assuming that that was coming from a place of, of a spiritual numbness hmm. or maybe spiritual laziness, but it was really, it was coming from a place of deep hurt hmm. in a way that I couldn't understand then. And I can understand now. Um, and so I think that the key to it is paying attention to, I mean, if, if you think of the even the metaphor that we use uh, for pastoral ministry, that of a shepherd, what what does a shepherd have to do? He has to lead sheep by watching uh, this direction that they can wander off and get lost or this direction where they can wander off and get lost. He, uh, he has to go out and find that one sheep when the 99 are left behind. So it's a matter of paying attention. Um, to what's happening within uh, within a congregation or within uh, even a person. I mean, we, we all have to do that in uh, almost every area of life where there's any measure of power. Mm. So, I mean, parenting. I have um, five sons, very different. I can think of one of my sons who is naturally kind of a perfectionist and kind of anxious uh, about mm -hmm. things. Another son who's just really chill, nothing bothers mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. I, I can't handle those two kids the same, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, sure. and you have to know them to know how to do that. And so I think paying attention to what's happening in the lives of people and uh, as, as, mo as best as possible, extending grace in a way that will, you know, sometimes when you're, when you're, if you're, for instance, participating in the foster care system uh, and you have a, a foster kid who comes into your home, there are going to be certain triggers uh, that are going to take place uh, with that child that um, may be just completely normal and, and nothing wrong with them in your household, but you realize, wait, she's going to experience this or he's mm. going to experience this in a different way. Mm. And so I have to find a different way to get at it. I, mm. I think that's just life together in, in many ways. So I would just counsel people to be aware of it and not to be uh, immobilized by the, the fear of making a mistake. You're mm. going to make mistakes, you know, but if you're aware of, uh, I, I realize that I have a power that I don't, um, that, that may not even be visible to me that I have to constantly be watching. Then it, when you do make a mistake and you handle a situation, you know, maybe with, without enough, um, emphasis or with too little emphasis. Okay. That's what we do. And, mm -hmm. and we get back up and we correct it. Now, uh, that's very different, though, than this sort of uh, using power in a way to to harm people. And a lot of times that happens because people uh, aren't even paying attention to what they're doing and what Man. sort of power they have. Yeah, it, it strikes me, especially as, as you're sharing about your dad, that like 
there are probably ways that he encouraged you and supported you in the years after that that conversation you reference that in a lot of ways he was more equipped to do and was able to do so with a lot more potency because he had seen behind the curtain and he had a direct experience of of how hard this is in ways that like he was he was that that was kind of a power in and of itself that he yeah. was stewarding and leveraging for your good and it makes me think about um earlier when i was mentioning that i've been in that situation myself i had a mentor and friend who encouraged me and he always told me two things one um this is actually god being good to you um because this is going to be build the character that you need in order to fulfill your calling and two if all you do for your people is model for them how to suffer well you actually will have a more powerful ministry than if you had the chance to do everything that you could do. And everything that you just articulated, it strikes me how important it is and how challenging it has been uh, to have all of our perspectives flattened, um, Mm -hmm. especially over the last year and a half, where the kinds of diversity of perspectives and different ways of seeing through other people's eyes has really been lost Mm -hmm. and how important that is in order to be able to know, okay, how do I handle this without overcorrecting? Or <laughs> undercorrect because we fear overcorrecting. Like that, mm-hmm. that, yeah, I, that I really appreciate that kind of ninja um, sidestepping of of the premise of the question in a way that's just like <laughs> actually that is that is so deeply and profoundly important. So I think he, I think you're right that he had a a unique a perspective and potency, but he also avoided what would have been a, a huge temptation. I think if I had been in his place, hmm. which is. Uh, you know, I had, uh, I was in a ministry situation. I took a ministry position that people told me, don't take that. The, the church is going through some really difficult things and you're, you know, you're 22 years old and you think, oh, well, I can change it. Uh, <laughs> and so it was, it was really uh, hurtful. And I have framed here uh, in my library uh, a note that he left for me. He wasn't, a, he wasn't somebody for whom it was easy to talk about, mm. you know, really, uh, really deep, uh, emotional things. But he wrote a note, uh, that never said, I told you so, mm. you know, never said, this is what I was uh, warning you about. Never even almost said that. And so I, you know, I, that I, it's one of those things where, I, and I think this is true sometimes with good authority, uh, whether that's from parents or pastors or mentors or anybody else, often you don't really notice what you've learned from them until mm. long yeah. after. Yeah. And you're in a different situation and you start. And, you know, I realized uh, he could have, with great warrant, uh, said, hey, this is what I was talking about when I said that. And he, he didn't. Hmm. That's, that's, that's super kind. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So Dr. Moore, if we kind of maybe um, zoom out from the church specifically, it, it seems like at some point in the last several years, and I, I appreciate your point, I, I'm not sure that there is an evangelical church, but if we you know assume for the sake of argument that there is, <laughs> both, mm-hmm. both within the evangelical church, but society even in general, the posture towards the use of power has become almost a primary point of of cultural division in, in, in division in the culture wars whereas you know broadly speaking there used to be maybe disagreement about specific methodology or policy or conviction or content now it's it's more a a division over how power is wielded towards mm-hmm. our own ends does that seem accurate to you um, do you see that distinction or Maybe where do you see, how do you see that developing as, as things progress? Well, I think to some degree, uh, it's always been the case that those conversations are about, are about the use of, of power because uh, what, we're, what we're trying to do, even in the best of, of circumstances. So think about in your local community and uh, you're thinking through how to deal with a zoning uh, question for a playground. I mean, what, what you're doing when people have disagreements about that, they're, they're talking about how do they, how do they harness the power, uh, that comes with being a a community toward a good end. 
um, and they just disagree sometimes about what the good end mm-hmm. is or how to get there. Uh, so that's uh, that's the best case scenario. What's happened now, I think, is that the definition or at least the grounding of power has changed where it's really not about whether or not we zone this particular place in order to put up this playground. It's about the kind of power that comes with tribal belonging and uh, the the kind of power that comes with having uh, avatars uh, mm-hmm. doing doing these uh, battles for us uh, mm-hmm. in our minds uh, out there, and that's a that's a very different uh, form of power. And what that has done is it means that to people actually usually aren't arguing about issues at all. What they're arguing about is uh, how dare you. Mm. You know, who who do you think you are and who do you think I am? That's that's Mm. really what the conversations ultimately uh, boil down to, uh, which is why people will shift with their avatars um, on on issues uh, of power uh, constantly Mm. Uh, because it's it's a very unique uh, kind of uh, clamoring for for power and unique, not in the sense of that it's never happened before. Um, I mean, I think this is this is a lot of what the Apostle Paul's getting at when he talks about unhealthy craving for controversy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and so forth. But it's it's unique in the way that it's manifesting itself in American culture right now, where mm-hmm. there's not there's not an island of refuge uh, from it. I mean, uh, lo- local communities are. Uh, the next door app, uh, you, you go on that. Oh my gosh! And oh, yeah. uh, you know, someone, it's the, uh, the most someone, toxic will, thing ever. yeah, it is the most toxic <laughs> thing ever because someone can can put up. Uh, I lost my uh, dog, and can you? Uh, can somebody help me find it? And that's going to eventually degenerate into. Uh, well, uh, is was this dog a rescue dog or not? And what kind of person are you if not or if so? I mean, you know, that that is there's not a place where you can say, oh, well, here is where there's a rest from that. Uh, and if people don't find it when they go to church often. Mm. So that's what I think is different right yeah. now. Okay. That really connects with something that you were saying earlier. I was thinking earlier about how one of the through lines of what you're describing is the exercise of authority or the use of power when it's accompanied with vulnerability mm-hmm. versus not being accompanied with vulnerability. And next door, social media in general is 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 a form of uh, a promise of being able to exercise or express power, but from a very safe distance where you get to craft the yeah. persona that is not you, but at a distance from any kind of like dignity, value, and worth being at risk. It, or, or at least that you think is a safe place. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it, it gives the illusion of being, uh, of being safe. And I, mm-hmm. I think that it's the, it's the distinction that uh, Eugene Peterson uh, made in um, when Kingfishers Catch Fire, I think is, is where he did this. Uh, about exoskeletons and endoskeletons, Ooh. where he says if you look at um, if you look at just the the biosphere, and uh, you'll have uh, some creatures with an exoskeleton, um, a crab, uh, for instance, where all the protections on the outside. But then when you look at a human being, uh, you've got an endoskeleton. The skeleton's inside. There's a a vulnerability that's on the outside that is is actually what enables uh, part of what enables humanity to be humanity. Hmm. Uh, and so he, he talks about how there's a temptation to want to put on the exoskeleton and to sort of eliminate risk, eliminate the vulnerability that has to be present to have genuine uh, relationship. And that and that leads to a, a place that um, where what eventually gets evacuated is love. Uh, and I think that's mm-hmm. often what's happening in terms of uh, in terms of social media and and frankly, in every other way. You know, um, I think about this all the time about how doing counseling with people 
it's so different than it was when I first started out in ministry. Uh, even when it comes to, for instance, um, if you find a, a couple and they're uh, living together, they're, they're not uh, married, there was a time when if you said, why aren't you married? The answer would have been, oh, we don't need a piece of paper. Marriage is nothing. It's not. Hmm. Uh, now, it's, it's usually not that they have too low a view of marriage, but that they have too high a view of marriage, at least in terms hmm. of expectation. Because they're saying, wow. my parents were divorced. I don't ever want uh, my future kids to go through that. So I want to make sure that this is the mm -hmm. one. I, I want to make sure that um, that we that this is my soulmate and that we're going to be. When in reality, any kind of uh, relationship, marriage relationship, parenting, friendship, uh, church uh, togetherness comes with the risk of being hurt. If you don't have hmm. that, then you're not able to to love someone. And that hmm. that attempt to sort of take all of the risk out uh, and protect myself leads yeah. to some really numbing places. It, it seems like one of the dynamics that's in play here that I don't think we've mentioned is just the prevalence of anxiety and fear mm -hmm. in our culture. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about your dad's experience and how it's what you've described is his negative experience in the church leading to a posture of love for his son. Mm -hmm. That's so often not what is happening in, in the church. Oh, right. And yeah. I mean, why, why is that happening? Why, you know, if, if perfect love casts out fear, why are we being so, driven by fear? Why, why is it that it, it seems like there is a, a lack of those places, these islands of refuge that you discuss, uh, talked about in our culture? I mean, is it, is it, is it the, the fear of the erosion of the church's place in society and culture? I mean, w what are you seeing that's contributing or driving that trend? Well, that's the question, is it? isn't it? <laughs> and I, I, don't, um, I don't fully know. Because if if what we were seeing is if what we were seeing were uh, fear and anxiety in one specific place, then we could go and trace back and say, well, what happened? Uh, what happened mm -hmm. there? So you're talking about the the church losing uh, influence in society. Maybe that's it. Well. But but it it extends far beyond the right. uh, the yeah. borders of the church, so it can't be that. Uh, it has to be something else, and I am not sure what it is, uh, other than perhaps this uh, unique time in human history where we're all experiencing a kind of loneliness that we wouldn't have experienced in, in previous time periods because of mobility mm -hmm. and technology and all of these things. That has to be, I think, a, a, a driving factor. And so then what happens is you, you find community or you try to find community in places that by definition, you have to perform to get in or to stay in. Because oh, tribalism, yeah. If you're if you're in a family or a village or a community or an actual tribe, you know, where everybody has known you uh, from birth and they knew your parents and they'll know your children, and there's that connectedness. There are a lot of problems that come with that that don't come with mobility. That is true, but you have a place where you're, you're there and, uh, and, and take, take it or leave it. You, however you are, that you're one of us. And now with that often breaking down for various reasons, uh, these sorts of, uh, political tribes or social media tribes or cultural and ideological tribes, you have to perform to, to get in or to stay in. And usually in American life right now, uh, the way that you perform is by a kind of theatrical outrage and uh, and anger, a and that 
uh, crosses a lot of these usual uh, borders. It just is, you know, where the outrage is is directed. But that's how you signal I'm I'm one of you because I hate the same people you do, and I'm just as angry about it as you are. Well, that live by the sword, die by the sword. I mean, that that's exactly that sort of um, mentality, that kind of hypervigilance uh, about maintaining one's place just leads to more and more and more of it. So that's, you know, I think there are a variety of reasons, but that's, I suspect one of them. I would be hard pressed given infinite resources, time and imagination to think of something that could more uh, catastrophically accelerate that dynamic than a pandemic yeah. that disembodies communities and reduces everything to online interactions. Yes. And I, I think my biggest, like it, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's really hard for me to understand the good and the value of churches. Like, okay, we're going to be doing live streaming and getting online more and, and engaging in social media more in ways that like actually risk enabling l- even more disconnection uh, from embodied community. And I just, it doesn't feel like too many people are actually talking about that loneliness epidemic that you're talking, that you just described. And that's, I'm, I'm kind of blown away by that, honestly. Well, here, here's why, here's why I'm not too pessimistic about the church moving into, um, moving into this disembodied sort of uh, world. And it's, it's not because I don't think people are going to try it. It's that I don't think it's going to work. Because, uh, because, uh, people, people can find that, uh, all sorts of, of other ways. Mm-hmm. And there's not a kind of, um, accountability that comes with it. So I think that, um, you know, one of the positive things about live streaming and, and churches that, that have live streaming and those things along with their embodied mm-hmm. presence is that it, it gives people who are sort of nicodemus like uh, a place that mm. they can that they can go to start to figure out what is this when they're afraid you know if they go to a church um i'm not going to maybe maybe there're going to be things where i'm not going to know when to stand up and when to sit down or maybe people are going to sign me up for something or you know people don't know when they've never been there that gives them a a little a little uh way to look in and in the best case scenario, move further and further along in. But in terms of just um, we're going to take the emergency measure of, of live streaming and that's going to be the new normal. I don't think that will I don't think that will work with the church. I, I really don't. I really hope not. I, I didn't sign up for that yeah. <laughs> as a pastor. So, I mean, it's it's definitely miserable on on this end of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, be- for sure. not, not just because of the, not just because of the lack of uh, connection, but because everything that the church does, um, assumes an embodiment, uh, the act of preaching, you can, you can communicate information in live streaming, but there's, there's a unique person to person dynamic with preaching, uh, that that just cannot it cannot be replaced uh, mm. by a mm. screen, uh, and the same thing is true with I mean what did Jesus give us? Uh, bread and wine and water, yeah. very uh, things that we have to be with each other to experience together, and kind of uh, drive through communion, uh, you know, as an emergency measure. That's fine, but that's. It's, it's, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't actually, uh, long-term do what communion's meant to do. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to, I want to come back and ask about, you mentioned the, the, the place of wisdom in the midst of this, um, and, and how we think through a way of stewarding power that is, well, we've been using the uh, the two um, uh, quotes of like Lord Acton, you know, when he said that um, all power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. How do we go from Lord Acton to Peter Parker? Uh, <laughs> and and with great power comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. 
it, it feels like, especially in this conversation around power, and I think that this has so much to do with the disembodiment that you just got done describing, but it feels like there is a kind of one view on power that says, this is the way, what the Bible says in terms of the normative, you know, to use John Frame's triperspectivalism, there's a normative reality and that's what we have to do. Then there's this other view that has said, uh, we've seen how that has been really abusive and insensitive to people. And so this, there's this existential perspective that says, no, like our experience is the truth. And that is, that is what should be defining this. But there's the situational perspective, which is, which is wisdom. Mm-hmm. And the nuance in the midst of that. And so I kind of just want to ask, like, where have you seen and how do we, if we are anemic in our understanding of how to, the intersection of wisdom and power, where where can we go to actually recover that? Both layperson and leader, like how, where where do we start? Because it doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of obvious opportunity to do so. Well, the answer I'm going to give is going to sound like a Sunday school answer, but Sunday school was right in this case, in my view, and, and that is the Bible. And what I what I mean by that is uh, there was a a great little book that uh, came out a couple years ago that talked about the replacement of Bible readers with Bible quoters. And I put Ooh. the book down and I said, that's exactly what it is. And, and uh, that was one of the things that I would find, you know, when I was working in theological education and I would have, um, you know, potential students that, that I'm talking to, I would find that at least the constituency that were drawn to, to our place uh, were very theologically uh, deep. Hmm. They knew how to go to the Bible to argue their position on Calvinism, Arminianism, or uh, egalitarianism, Mm -hmm. complementarianism, or whatever the controversies were. They didn't know the difference between Hezekiah and Josiah, because Hmm. for for many of them, that seemed to be, that's a detail, but you know, mm. that, that's not what, what we're really getting at is what is abstracted from the text of, of Scripture. But what is necessary is a living in uh, the storyline of Scripture. I mean, that's mm. what Jesus is pointing to when he's being tempted in the wilderness. And mm. uh, he, he's quoting Scripture, but he's quoting Scriptures that indicate, you know, going back to Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8, he's placing himself in the story of Israel— uh, and he's saying to the devil, I see what you're doing because you've done it before. Uh, Paul does that. You know, our fathers were under the cloud. They went through the waters. I mean, this, this is this is necessary uh, for formation. And if you hmm. think about in terms of wisdom, you think about the various um, the various metaphors that are used, uh, which uh, metaphors matter greatly. The, the metaphors that you use shape how you see things. Many of the metaphors for wisdom uh, in Scripture are agricultural. And uh, some of them say, well, of course it is because it's an agrarian society. Uh, yes, but the God who's mm. breathing out Scripture is also uh, sovereign over the time periods in which that Scripture is breathed out and the context in which it's uh, breathed out. And there's something about that organic nature of cultivation of, uh, Isaiah says, uh, the, the wisdom that's being taught by God about how seeds work, uh, mm. and, and watering. And then, I mean, you, you think of the way Jesus is constantly using, uh, that sort of, of language. Mm-hmm. It's not, uh, it, it's, it's the difference between what Kierkegaard used to talk about the difference between a genius and an apostle. Uh, where the the genius is someone who has mastery uh, over something and is coming to you with that mastery, as opposed to an apostle who's being sent uh, w- with mm. something out, you know, from somewhere else. I think that uh, I think there's also a contrast between the genius and the farmer, and that there's something in wisdom that is more than just knowing abstract facts. You know a place. Mm. You know. Uh, a flock, you know, a people uh, that I think is is often missing. And that mm. sort of wisdom, in order to have that sort of wisdom, one has to care about 
something more than just one's own appetites, whether it's an appetite for power or an appetite for whatever it is. You, you have to be outward focused in order to actually have that kind of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the uh, making a place for the people one is serving. So I think that uh, that that has to be that has to be recovered uh, before we can we can really move forward. Wow. Okay. So I want to ask a follow up question because you're just like singing my song like <laughs> crazy. There. Yeah. I actually had a conversation earlier this week where I was telling somebody I, I've been reading through in my kind of morning daily office uh, reading through the historical books. And I've just finished first Chronicles, which if I'm honest, I probably haven't read for decades. Like since the last time I determined to read through the whole Mm -hmm. Bible. And I, I I forgot how much of first Chronicles is just like lists of people's Mm -hmm. names. And somebody, somebody said to me, like, what do you get out of that? I mean, that's what I've been reading in scripture for a couple of weeks now, you know, as I kind of stuck, took a step back and thought, what, what do I get out of that? I I don't, in some ways, like it's the question that I have a problem with. I think what I got out of it was spending time with God. And like, I know who Hezekiah and Josiah are now too, or am reminded again. But the question I'm trying to get to is how do we help people believe that's true long enough that they actually start to develop that appetite? Because I, I think that a lot of the people um, that were that were pastoring. I don't mean just like us at our church here, but in general, mm-hmm. either have very little experience with the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, th- those who are Christians still have very little experience with the Bible, mm-hmm. or in some cases, they have a, a, a kind of a, a more legalistic background that really kind of banged the drum of you have to do your daily. Mm-hmm. quiet time or you're not a good Christian and they've kind of, mm-hmm. kind of been set free maybe from the legalism of that. Mm-hmm. But, and yet we can't be, we can't live as Christians. We can't develop wisdom as you've said, without scripture. How do we do this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that's a huge question. Yeah. But, well, but I, how, mean, like, I, I mean, you have to, if you, if you read the Bible once and then you come back to it in three weeks, it's not shaping and forming you. How do yeah. we get people to like take the risk of I'm going to try this every day for three or four weeks so that I'm being shaped by something other than you know my phone or <laughs> yeah the well I think the TV. I think the first way is to reset what uh, our expectations are so that the question that question uh, what are you getting out of First Chronicles? is a perfectly reasonable question given the assumptions, Mm -hmm. which is that what happens in the Bible is you come through and you read the Bible and you mine out of it the abstract truths and the applications uh, for your life, and then you're ready for whatever whatever comes uh, at you. That's not actually how the Bible works, though. Uh, What happens is your your answer uh, when this person asks, what did you get out of it, is, I don't know because you don't know uh, what is uh, what is happening in the the shaping and forming of you by hearing from God from that text and you don't know why you're going to need it uh, y- you know it's mm. it's we've spent a lot of time showing people how to here's the place in the Bible to go uh, when you, uh, are discouraged or when you are facing death or when you are, but you mm. actually, you need those things ahead of time. I think that at least for a long time in, in the church, we had a model for that with hymnody. Uh, you know, not, not now as much because you have, you have the generational, uh, people aren't singing the same song as you said as I said in many cases but uh but the hymnody you know you're you're learning to sing things that I I know a woman who was telling me about her mother who has dementia doesn't recognize anybody doesn't know uh, anything that's going on but when a hymn plays that she uh, used to sing 
she sings it all uh, by heart. Mm. Well, why? Because it embeds in this deeper place. Mm. And and you don't know, uh, you know, there are so many people who on their deathbeds, just as I am without one plea, mean something totally different. And it was it was being shaped and formed years in ways they were never thinking about mm. their, their deathbed. Mm. So it's kind of like with, you know, with... Um, when I'm doing premarital counseling, one of the things that's always kind of alarming to people is when I say, you're going to fight. And let me recommend that you take those points of tension in your marriage and you talk about them in the best of times. People say, I don't want to ruin uh, <laughs> our, you know, we're having this great candlelit dinner and I'm talking about uh, the problems that I'm having with his mother or her mother or whatever. Well, yeah, but that's the time to, to do it so that you're not in the heat of the moment. Hmm. And so modeling for people what it means and understanding and knowing that uh, making this a chore is, is not going to, to work. I mean, the, the people you're talking about, the sort of legalistic, uh, I know exactly what you're talking about because uh, I had uh, someone I knew, a friend, that when I would go to their house, uh, the family devotion time was just the most oppressive and uh, because out came this big Bible and uh, and it was just this boring and and kind of um, the parents are taking up all the disciplinary issues that they want to address and embedding it in the text. And I mean, that's ah, that's awful. That awful. And so but instead, <laughs> if you come in and you say to people, God hasn't told us how everybody ought to do this. People are people are created with different inclinations, and so here are some ways that you can try to uh, do this in ways that might work for you. Um, and and here's how you can start it. I mean, there's this um, there's an I I recommend to people all the time because praying is very difficult for me. Uh, and, and always has been a, a difficult thing to remind myself, you've got to pray. Um, there's a little, an app, the daily prayer app that I think the Anglican church in North America put together, or, or, or maybe someone kind of related to them, um, that three times a day, uh, you have a framework for, uh, for reading some scripture, praying, I would say to people, try that. Mm. You know, maybe that's what you need is that prompt where you yeah. get into the habit. But there are others, other people for whom this this looks it looks different because what you're doing is when you're we're going into the scripture, you're hearing from God and you're you're hearing God, uh, Christ addressing you. So th there's there's going to be different ways that people do this, and I think sometimes when people I mean, again, you go back to the the agriculture uh, metaphor. Yeah. You know, different plots of land respond to different things, and so if you if you sometimes I think if we just stand up and we say do your daily Bible reading and do your devotionals, people are thinking I don't know how to do that in a way that's not, you know, I don't even know where to start. Yeah, and if you just give one way to do it, it also can become uh, discouraging to people because they think. Um, okay, well, that's not working for me. Yeah. Okay, well, that doesn't mean give up. Let's let's try something else. I, I think I think you just connected some dots to a question we were talking about earlier. Like, where does this anxiety come from? Because mm. I, I've been really helped by Alan Noble's uh, writing, especially around how mm -hmm. secular society is is pushing in ways that we're not even aware of. This like this legalism toward optimization, like we have to be efficient mm -hmm. and we have to get squeeze the most out of everything. And within the church, the form of that, that takes seems to be this kind of pragmatism that treats the Bible like you were talking about to like go and find the, you know, the verses to address the thing that we are experiencing as we experience it. Or, or I mean, it can do, it can do that way, or it can do it uh, with a, uh, here's, here's how the Bible supports the Heidelberg catechism, you know? So it, it can happen yeah. both with the kind of pragmatic, pragmatic kind of people and 
hypercerebral kind of people. It can happen in any of those contexts, but it's the same thing. Well, and and that's in that way, we're not actually submitting to scripture. We're using it. And if we want to create a flourishing space for power where trust can happen and it doesn't require an egalitarian, everyone has the same amount of power in the room, it 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 strikes me that it actually has to start with saying, hey, you know what? You're giving way too much power to this urgency to achieve your own identity, to mm-hmm. accomplish and build your own dignity and value and worth. What if you didn't have to do that? Would you maybe have time to trust God enough to just sit in his word and not need to get anything from it? And then maybe our hearts are cultivated toward that translating within the broader body of Christ. Because I, I just, I, 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 just as you're talking about that, I'm like, we're, we're actually, we're, I thought for a second we were like talking about something other than power. And it's like, actually, we're not. This is, this is all part of it. So thank you. Yeah, That's and, amazing. And I, I think that, um, the 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 other problem is that where the incentives are all toward novelty mm. uh, r- right now yeah. toward uh, dopamine hits of uh, different uh, sorts of uh, experiences and what what the church has uniquely is liturgy mm. and, uh, and and by that. I mean all of the church. I, I don't just mean uh, those those parts of the church that have a uh, have a developed uh, liturgy in the way that we think about it. But the the connecting points that are habitual uh, over a week or a year or a lifetime. So that you know, I think about some of the most powerful things I think for people are uh, wedding ceremonies. Where the, the you know the bride and the groom aren't coming in and creating their own vows, they're hearing the same vows that their parents <sighs> yeah. agreed to, and Amen. the same vows that their grandchildren one day will agree to. And then at a funeral, where what they're hearing, these are the words that I heard when my grandfather died, and these are the words that they will say when I die. Mm. Um, I mean that connecting of people. I think sometimes the the reticence doesn't come from the people. It comes from us. It comes from those of us who are in leadership because mm-hmm. we think, well, this is going to be boring to people and they're mm-hmm. going to, they're going to want something uh, more novel. Yeah, they, they probably will at first, but you know, mm-hmm. over the course of a lifetime, um, when we give that up, people are just sort of bewildered uh, in a, an ever, uh, an ever-changing uh, sort of uh, sort of world around them. Yeah, gosh, that that's really good and really helpful. I I, I wonder if kind of um, if we could each ask kind of a closing question here. And one one of the things that Brad and I have discovered as we've done the podcast is we have kind of two segments of our audience, and and one of those is pastors. I think that certainly what I'm experiencing as, as a pastor, a lot of our listeners are experiencing is that uh, ministry has turned out to be very, very different than we expected it would yes. during seminary. Yes. And yeah, I think some of that might just be, you know, the, the age <laughs> where we are. If, if you went to seminary 15 years ago, you were maybe on the end of a, a certain cultural moment and it's the ground has totally shifted beneath yeah. our feet in that time. And I, I think about, you know, you, you said earlier um, that one of the cultural dynamics that's in play right now is that we demonstrate that we're with you because we hate the same people that you hate. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of pastors are trying to figure out how do we navigate life in that sort of a world. And it seems like the church, uh, the, the gospel gives us the resources to not be... <laughs> Um, shaped in that sort of way. And yet a lot of us are leading churches where we're kind of trying to like keep that impulse at bay, but we know mm-hmm. it's still there. Mm. So with all of that, to, all of that to kind of lead up to how, how much, what sort of encouragement might you be able to offer pastors that are kind of walking through this kind of constantly shifting minefield, um, especially around the issue of power? Well, I have this conversation about 10 times a day uh, with, with pastors. And what I always say is, 
I've got good news and I've got bad news and they're the same thing, uh, which is everybody is going through this. Mm. Uh, you know, that that's good news because a lot of times pastors assume I have done something wrong. I don't know uh, what you're talking I wasn't, about. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've not adequately trained or I've, you know, this, this is the result in my congregation. I've done something really wrong and, and say, no, it doesn't matter if it's the same dynamic is at work when I'm talking to a rural, uh, a pastor of a rural congregation of 30 people or a megachurch uh, pastor, the, the same, you know, they manifest themselves different ways, but it's the same thing. The, the bad news about it is that means that you can't, you can't get away from it by changing venues. Uh, because it's it's going to follow you uh, everywhere that, that you go. Mm-hmm. So I think the the way that we address it is, and I I it's funny you ask that because I was just thinking about that this morning. I was rereading a Wendell Berry essay about um, you know from years and years and years ago that I hadn't read in several years, but it had a different meaning for me now. He was talking about an entirely different issue, but. He said, um, the first step is honesty, um, mm. and, and honesty can't fix the problem, but honesty can identify the problem and identify the, the, the fact that we're all in the problem uh, at the same time. And then he said that the problem is that everyone wants a large-scale solution to a large-scale problem, and there's not one. What has to happen is the accumulation of a lot of small scale mm. uh, solutions, and I think that's I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, I think if if you know there are a lot of us who are discouraged and exhausted, and you know there are a lot of people kind of filled with shame because they think they're they're failing or they think that they've they've done something wrong. Um, I think that we need each other <laughs> and if, if we if we recognize that and we just pay attention to what's going on in such a way that we can endure with with patience find the ways to endure with patience uh, and to show people a different way mm. that's you know that that takes a long time and it's 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 not the same thing um, it, you can't do it as quickly um, as everything seems to have happened. Yeah. But that's, I mean, it's just, it's ordinary, ordinary things, which, uh, which seem more and more distinctive, uh, in a world that's moving toward a metaverse. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> well played. I, I, well I'm going to resist my, the urge <laughs> of asking to talk about that more. Maybe we'll have you back for that. Um, but final question here. Uh, because the other, which is really fascinating, especially as we're talking about, you know, abuse of power and power in the church. Um, it's been really incredibly encouraging for Bryce and I to find out that like the other kind of half of our listeners are, are either nuns, uh, N O N E S post evangelicals, ex evangelicals, those who are wrestling with it to one degree or another with like, how, like, is there actually a place here in the church for me? And who mm-hmm. are wondering yeah. if the church is or can be different from the 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 insane maelstrom uh, of the culture war? Mm-hmm. What would you say by way of encouragement to them, um, whether they've had a direct experience or not, or they're just seeing all the news articles about you know abuse and are 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 struggling with that risk aversion that we've been talking about? Well, I would say I would say two different things depending on whether I was talking to them mm. uh, or if I'm talking to um, to people who are trying to love them. Mm. <laughs> and so, what I would say to the people who are trying to to love them is to say, uh, understand this. Mm. Yeah, and uh, this isn't this really isn't in most cases the prodigal son. Who is uh, who is leaving to go to the far country and to spend his inheritance? In many cases, it's a a, a son where the house is is being burned down and uh, is being sent into exile. And so let's let's have some 
uh, let's have some compassion that isn't elder brother uh, condemnation of that, especially because, you know, and I know this sounds like, but for the grace of God go I, and I don't, I don't mean it that way, but I know it just so happened that I had followed Jesus for enough numbers of years and had this kind of support system around mm. me. But if I didn't, um, if, if, if some of the things that I've seen, I had seen 10 years earlier, I would be an ex-evangelical and probably an ex-theist, you know? Uh, and so, uh, but, so have some compassion. Mm. To the to then uh, the and I also talk to a lot of ex evangelicals and post uh, post evangelicals and others uh, every day. What I would say is okay. Uh, what has happened is really awful hmm. and disconcerting. Jesus warned us that it would happen, hmm. uh, and if you if you look at the New Testament, he's constantly warning this. And uh, then uh, after the ascension. The next time that we hear from him in an extended way is in the opening chapters of Revelation where he's rebuking churches mm-hmm. uh, for, in, in many cases, predatory uses of power. And so differentiate between Jesus and everybody that comes in his name. And that's hard to do. And the reason it's hard to do is because it's not meant to be that way. Head and body are meant to be uh, united together. But differentiate. And what I would warn against is don't give in to cynicism. Uh, the skepticism is is right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's a, a good deal of wisdom to be found in the skepticism, but don't don't give in to cynicism. And the reason for that is because it doesn't correct the problem. Um, you know, the the, the problem to the the problem the problem of authoritarianism has to be addressed not with anarchy but with with genuine loving authority mm. and the problem of sort of a herd mentality uh can't be addressed with loneliness it has to be addressed with genuine uh loving community and so i i think there's a i get it because uh, there have been times in my life when I've experienced hurt from the church. And one of the things that I've thought is I need to just withdraw for long enough to heal up before I can go back and re-engage for some people. Yeah, that's exactly what they, they need to do. But in most cases, um, you're never going to feel like you're, you know, at a place where you can, you can just immediately trust again. And you shouldn't necessarily that way, but but don't overprotect yourself to a place where you're you feel invulnerable to hurt, but you're actually cutting yourself off from something that you need and that you actually love. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's really great, Doctor Moore. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. You have shared with us both with uh, compassion, but conviction also. And I think we've seen you model that more generally as you've uh, navigated just a lot of turbulent situations publicly. So thank you so much for doing that. But thanks for talking with us today as well. We appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah. So Brad, what just changed for you after our conversation with the Dr. Russell Moore? Man, well, what changed were my questions as we went. Um, <laughs> um, it, that was really interesting because I, I think, uh, like, I came prepared with some. We both came prepared with some questions that had some kind of assumptions and categories that he both sidestepped and directly blew out of the water. And my first reaction was like, "Oh boy, this 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 might get a little awkward," and I'm not really sure like what to do with it. But man he just has a humility in the way that he engages that actually connected and reconnected back to this topic of power in ways that I didn't, I didn't really expect. Um, and it was when he was talking about being like creatures in and of the word, like we are imbibing scripture and we are 
before we need to pull out and reference or quote a verse to help us get through whatever crisis we're going through. And what he's describing there, and I kind of said this, but is, is a humility that sits under God's power through and under the authority of his word. And it just, I don't think I had the connection previous to this of how that actually can be the incubator and the training wheels for what it looks like to go from, you know, sitting in, in under submission of authority of God's word to the authority and submission to the body of Christ and the church. And so that was, that was beautiful. And I, I really appreciated the kind of, you know, ninja retweaking of my, my, my thought process around that. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. What about you, man? Like what, what, what's, uh, how did he blow your mind? I really appreciated his emphasis on what, what he said about kind of the, the agricultural metaphors in the Bible mm-hmm. and just thinking about, you know, we don't think of farmers as the most powerful members of society in our time. Uh, we don't think about farmers at all. We have no idea where our food comes from, right? But yeah. the idea of planting seeds and then just waiting, there's actually a deep power in that. And I, I loved what he said, you know, do you, do you know how, how, notice how subtly he like corrected me? Um, he's like, well, what, how you should have answered that question about what you got out of First <laughs> Chronicles yeah. was, you don't know. But I loved what he said is, you don't know when you're going to need it mm. either. And I think that that is just a, um, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful truth that God, God tells us like what we need to do, but we have no idea exactly why, or at least in the immediate practical sense. I also think it's really just interesting to think about the reality that we're living through this time where it feels like everything's changing and if we can tend to just kind of join the freak out. And Mm. so going back to that, that metaphor of, the farmer or the shepherd who knows his flock is leaning on God, trusting that the seeds he's going to plant now are going to bear fruit later, but he's not going to see them immediately. Really, really powerful. Well, man. And, you know, you and I were talking about Psalm one earlier today yeah. and how um, it's, it's I, one of the, my favorite parts about that Psalm is when it says that, you know, you the righteous is planted near streams of still water like a tree bearing fruit in its season in season yes and yeah. that that not bearing fruit tomorrow morning and and, <laughs> and or, not all the or time 365 yeah bearing yeah. fruit in season exactly and man that requires a death to self humility that trusts in god's power to produce the fruit that is a result of our planting ourselves in his word instead of trying to like staple on fruit to a dead tree. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that we want to share with you an Advent song that's related to the themes we've discussed today. You can find that by heading over to our new Facebook group. We've linked that in the show notes, and you can also find it by searching for Everything Just Changed on Facebook. We'd love to have you join the conversation there and let us know what changed for you after listening to this episode. Everything Just Changed is edited by Nathan Michelle. Our logo and theme music are by Danny Rankin. I'm Bryce Hales with my co-host Brad Edwards. Join us next week as we continue this series on power. We're going to be talking with friend of the podcast, David French, as we seek to equip leaders who just can't even anymore right here on Everything Just Changed. Thank you.